on this. So, okay, let's open in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this gorgeous day out. Thank you for this time of Thanksgiving of the year when we thank you for all that you've done for us. And Father, if we started just thanking you for things, we could never stop for all that you've done. Pray for Ed, Father, that you grant him strength this week as he faces the challenges with the doctors, that uh, you give them wisdom and give him wisdom to know what to do, and him and Diane's strength. And we just thank you for them, Father, a precious couple. Pray now, Father, you would teach us in this time together. In Christ's name, amen. Um, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, I, was a little, I was a little afraid last week thinking this was really, going to be really boring. I had somebody write me an email saying it was the most interesting class I've done yet, just about. So I don't know how that works out. Um, I find it fascinating a little bit just to get an idea of what's out there because there's a lot of, you know, FUD. You know what FUD is, right? F-U-D, it's a technical term. It means fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And uh, when you turn on the History Channel and you turn on Discovery, you get a lot of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, about the manuscripts and about the biblical record that we have. And when you just dig in just a little bit below the surface, you find that um, most of them speak from ignorance. In fact, all of them do just about. And that we have an accurate and reliable record that God has given us. And that's what we're talking about here. Um, when you look at manuscripts, and I'm going to, in a little bit here, we'll actually see some old manuscripts. Um, when we talk about manuscripts, here's some definitions that come out. And if you read any kind of literature, any kind of material on this, or any books on this, these are um, things that will come out and they'll talk about. Cursive is a cursive style of, of lettering. In fact, in the Greek language, they actually had a way they could write script. And why did they do that? Why do you think they started that? Speed. Yeah. Speed. It's faster. It's, admit, it's faster to write script than it is to write individual letters. All right? And so what they did is they developed a script or a cursive form of lettering which allowed them to copy manuscripts faster. And realize, you know, this is before the printing press. So every manuscript you had was handwritten. So it took a while to do this. All right? Um, a gloss we've talked about... Uh, it's like a little marginal note, and you all have marginal notes in your Bible, most of you do. You put a little note in the margin and make a little explanation. And uh, what we found in some manuscripts is that some of these marginal notes made itself in, made their way into the actual text. And we can determine those. Those are easy to figure out. Probably a good example of that would be the first John, or not first John, but John 5, where it talks about the pool of Bethesda. Yeah. and the angel coming down and disturbing the waters. That was probably a marginal note that somebody put in there that later on became part of a manuscript that we picked up. We'll talk about that. Um, hypothesis. It's, these are brief introductions to books. Um, you see a lot of these in the Psalms and, you know, like who wrote the book and why it was written. Um, a lectionary is the early Sunday school material. What it would be is little um, lessons. They would put lessons together. They would use a biblical text and do a lesson. And what's, what, uh, why these are important is because a lot of these lectionaries go back way, way back, very early. And it gives us an idea of what the biblical text was at the time that these lectionaries were written. For example, it would quote a verse and then it would give a little lesson on that verse. 
And so we're able to really find a valuable source of information from the, about the early text from these lectionaries. Um, sort of a read through the Bible in a year kind of thing. Very early on. I mean, we're talking about 1st, 2nd century A.D. Yeah, you see a lot of these in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. And later on, these came in, became the, um, the liturgy. You know, if you go, if, for you, all you ex-Catholics out there, you have the liturgy. And later on, some of this came into that, where you have a liturgical kind of thing. But these are early lessons. And remember, most people back then, they didn't read, really. So somebody read it to them, but these are lessons that they had early Sunday school lessons. A minuscule is a manuscript that's written in lowercase letters. That's all it is. Think of mini, lowercase. Um, an epistograph is a papyrus. Uh, now, remember when we talk about papyrus, there's a good side and a bad side. So most papyrus scrolls were written on one side only, but sometimes they would write on both sides of the scroll. You'd have a front and a back. Conflation, this is an important term. Conflation means to expand. And we ended the class with this last week. Generally, what would you expect to happen to a manuscript that is copied? Would it shrink or expand? And how would it expand? Some people trying to clarify things. All right? Um, maybe in good faith trying to clarify things. Um, you'll see a lot of this where you might see um, Jesus Christ in one verse and then a later manuscript would have the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now is there any theological change? No, because Jesus Christ is Lord. But the text expands a little bit. All right? And over centuries, over the time, the text of the Scripture has expanded slightly by these small alterations that were added to clarify the text. Now, again, and this is, the, this is the caution, we're not talking about theological changes here. We're not talking about new doctrines being added, anything like that. We're talking about clarifications to the text. It's the same thing you would do if you are copying things. You know, you might copy an old letter or something, and you might clarify it. You might add a clarification, and that's what we see here. But here's the other thing. We can pick these out. We can find these very simply. Yeah, you can, you can know where they are, and you can say, oh, okay, that's Lord Jesus Christ, and here's Jesus Christ. It was probably Jesus Christ, but somebody added the Lord just to clarify it. But it doesn't change the theology of it. It doesn't make him something he is not. Um, a palimpsest that's a fancy word there, it's a parchment manuscript that was erased and used for another text. So, um, our older manuscripts are these things called the unseals, which are the uppercase letters. And what happens is, I mean, writing material is pretty rare in those days, you know. So if you had a parchment and you didn't want what was written on it, you could erase it and write over it with something else. And some of our texts, some of our manuscripts of the New Testament and Old Testament are actually unseals that were written over. They actually erased them and wrote over them with something else. And using modern chemical analysis and things like that, we can recover the original and what was on there, which is interesting. But the other one here's the unseal. That's just the capital letters. They're the earliest manuscripts. Most of them are papyri. Most of all the papyri are unsealed manuscripts written with uppercase letters. And then later on, lowercase developed. And then later on, cursive writing 
developed. No, they they uh they would scrape it off. Usually, they would scrape it off, you know, with a with a sharp object or something, because it was animal skin. So they they'd scrape it off, and, and it wouldn't scrape it all the way off. It just make it so you, it was hard to read. But then you could write something more clear over it, like you do with a pencil now. You know, if you erase something with a pencil, you could still see little smudges there probably. But when you write over it, you don't notice the smudges. Um, when we talk about readings, we're talking about a variation in a manuscript. So, for example, I would have manuscript A and B, and I would have a verse, and that verse would have two different readings. In other words, one verse might have an additional letter in it or an additional word. That would be a reading. Okay, that's what the technical term is, just a different reading. It's a variation in a text. All right? A variant is the same thing as a reading. Okay? And we'll look at some of these. Um, how do you determine how old a manuscript? This is important. And by the way, understand, we talk about manuscripts of the Bible. We're talking about thousands of these things. We're not talking about 20 or 30 of these things. We're talking about thousands. Thousands of manuscripts of, of pieces. About 25,000 all told um, when you count them all up. So there's a lot of evidence out there. Now, for the Old Testament, there's less than for the New because it's just an older text. And it was... Um, it was. It has a different history than the New Testament, but for the New Testament, there's about 25,000 of these things. So how do you tell how old something is, and why? Why would age be important? Why would age be important in a manuscript? So they know how old the, Pardon? So they know how old the materials are. Well, not how old the materials are, but why would age? Validity. Validity. Okay. Generally, what would you say about an older manuscript? Generally. It's more closer to the original, generally. All right? The older it is, the more closer it is to the original because the less copying has been done. All right? So generally, that's the case. And again, by the way, and I, I got to keep repeating this because, you know, people get confused. 99.9996% of the text, we've got the original on. There's very few places where there's any question. All right? Yeah. So the older generally are the better. So that's why it's important to date these things. Well, papyrus were used in the New Testament times. Parchment were used in the old. So if you see a parchment scroll, generally that's for the older man. Because they didn't have papyrus. You know, they didn't have widespread papyrus use. And also, by the way, it depends on where the manuscript was made, right? If it was down in Egypt, you have papyrus. If it's up in Greece, you don't have papyrus. You have parchment, all right? Um, you can look at the letter sizes and, and see how big the letters are and, the, and the, the way the letters are written. You could tell that with English, right? Anybody read Old English? Yeah. I mean, Old English. Yeah. You know, where the S is a big F or whatever it is and things like that. You can sort of tell by the shape of letters how old something is generally. So there's one another way to determine how old the manuscript is. Um, punctuation wasn't used until the 6th century. So if you've got something that doesn't have punctuation... That gives an idea of the old, the age of it. Um, text divisions um, is another way. The way the, the, the actual words are formed on the page change over time. Um, ink, different kinds of ink, different kinds of materials. All of these go into determining the age of a manuscript. So when they talk about a manuscript being at such and such a time period, what they've done is they've taken all of these things into consideration and give you a general age 
of that manuscript. Do you know the exact year? Well, no. But you can get it down, you know, fairly close. Um, let's look at Old Testament manuscripts to start out with here. Old Testament. Um, when you look at Old Testament um, manuscripts, they, they're all produced by hand, by, by the way. They're all written out by hand. And scribes did that. That's what the scribes, scribal profession was. They were the copiers of the holy text. And they had certain rules that they followed when they did this that we'll look at here. But when you look at the period about 300 B.C. to 500, manuscripts were produced for synagogues and private study. Why is that? Expense, right? These are very expensive things to do. So unless you were a very wealthy person, you did not have a library. You did not have books. You didn't have your own scroll. And if you wanted the scripture read, you went down to the local synagogue that had a scroll that was that they paid a lot of money for to have copied. Um, these are very few. There weren't a lot of these. And they were, listen, they were very carefully transmitted. And they were official copies. There was an official stamp on them. This was, this was something that's very important to understand. When it comes to Old Testament manuscripts, we do not have a lot of variation in them because of the way they were copied. These people took their duties as an act of worship. Um, they were very careful in this. They were reproducing the words of God. And they felt that if they had misrepresented that, that God would judge them. They were very careful about how they did this. But you don't have a lot of these. This is the Talmudic period. This is when the Talmud was written. This is the, the Pharisaical commentaries on the Old Testament. The, and a lot of this, a lot of these were brought into, we see them in the New Testament when Christ confronted their traditions. A lot of this stuff came out of this time. But this, the Talmud is the commentary on the Old Testament. It's the, it's the Hebrew commentary on the Old Testament. Yeah. When they were writing the, uh, the manuscripts, didn't they... They had to get a new pen. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll show what they did here. This is really it's really pretty fascinating how they did this. Um, and then the next period, the Masoretic period, is about AD 500 to 1000. And what they did is they revised the way they did manuscript production, basically by adding vowel pointings. Um, again, since Hebrew was not a well-known language at that time, how do you know how to pronounce it? Well, you had people that sort of knew the old language, and they added these vowel pointings that would help you understand how to pronounce the various letters, or the various words. Um, and these, again, when you look at these people here, the, 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 um, the quality of their copies was so high that, again, I think earlier on when I explained this, when you compare their copies from about 900 A.D. to the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's very little difference. Very little difference. Um, most of the differences have to do with uh, um, grammar. You know how grammar changes over time? So there might be a grammatical change. Or you can see a smudge where one letter got transformed into another letter. We saw last week some, some Hebrew letters look very much alike. And you get a little bit of smudge, a little bit of dirt on a page. You can mistake a letter, but we can pick those out. Those are easy to pick out. But, you know, when it looks at the, uh, the quality of the manuscript, they're virtually identical. Here's how it was processed. Here's the copying process, just so how, how particular they were. 
Each scroll had to be written on the skin of a clean animal. What was a clean animal? Couldn't, couldn't write on pig skin, all right? Had to be like calf skin or cows or something, or goats maybe. Um, it, could, it had to be a clean animal, first of all. Now, is, that, is there any way in the Bible that says they had to do it that way? No, but that's just the way they did it, all right? Um, it was prepared for use in synagogue by only a Jew. Only a Jewish person could copy the Jewish text. All right, so you couldn't hire out a Gentile to do this. It had to be a Jew that does this. Um, and when you fasten the sheets or the parchments together, you had to use strings from a clean animal. You couldn't use pig hide. You had to use cow hide all right, to string these things together. Each skin, each one of the skins, had to contain a specified number of columns equal throughout the book. So if you had a skin with four columns on it, that had to be four columns here, here, all the way through the book. Every skin had the same number of columns of text on it. All right? Very, very, um, very particular about that. Each column itself, each one of the columns, must not extend over less than 48 lines or more than 60. So the length of the column had a very defined length. All right? And this, by the way, this was the same throughout. So if you had 48 lines, you had 48, 48, 48, 48, 48, all the way down. Each column can only have exactly 30 characters in it. All right, you see how, how, I mean, they counted the number of characters in the lines. You could only use a special recipe of black ink. There was a special recipe, a particular recipe they used, and that's the only kind of ink you could use to do this. And you must have an authentic copy to start out with. So you had an official copy that you had, and then you were making a copy of that, and you had to make sure that the number of columns were right, the number of lines in the column were exact, the number of letters in the column or in the, each line was exact. I mean, this was a very particular and fastidious way. And by the way, if you, found, if you made one mistake, you destroyed the whole manuscript. All right? One, you didn't erase it. You destroyed the manuscript. That's how particular they were. How do you think it went from a scroll to a page? Well, pages are sewn together to make a scroll. Alright? So as you'd unroll the scroll, you'd have, um, you know, where they were sewn together to make the, the, the various pages, the various pages were sewn together to, and rolled up into a scroll. So finally those pages were then just found and put into a book? In later years, they were made a book. Early on, they were scrolls. Right. Yeah. Um, you could not copy anything from memory. Now, you've got to understand, if all you did, 20, you know, seven days a week, well, six days a week, whatever, eight hours a day, six days a week, is copy manuscripts, what would happen over a period of years? <laughs> you'd know, you'd remember it. You, you know, you'd remember the text, right? Well, when you were copying this, you weren't allowed to copy anything from memory. You had to copy letter by letter, nothing from memory, because that would remove your memory from making a mistake, all right? So you couldn't do that. Between every consonant, you had the space of a thread. So as you look at these manuscripts, they were very, it's almost like being produced by a printer, a printing press. They were so equally spaced, all right? Between every section, the breadth of nine consonants, I mean, you look at this and you see how 
fastidious they were to make this thing just exactly right. Between every book you had three lines, three blank lines, and this, the Pentateuch must terminate exactly with one line. So when you're done writing all five books of Moses, right, and you come to the last line, you've got 29 characters, guess what? You destroy the manuscript and start over again. That'd be sort of a bummer, wouldn't it? Because they didn't want to have any mistakes. They knew that the, that, that the, that the last line of the, of the Pentateuch had exactly 30 characters in it. If they had 29, they missed something along the way. They destroyed it. Start over again. Go get a new calf and start over again. You know. Um, some of the books, some of the books like, um, um, for example, uh, Psalms, had different sections in it. It was like our paragraph, kind of, but bigger than that. And they would have different sections in the book, and they would put these three consonants between each of the sections. It's sort of like an old kind of punctuation between the sentences kind of thing. Remember, they didn't have punctuation in sentences. Did you say breadth of nine consonants? Yeah. See, each of the consonants, it was, a, it was all like a, it was, a, it was a, almost a monospaced script that they would write in. And I have some examples of manuscripts here, you'll see how it is. It was almost a monospaced script, like Courier, all you typists. Yeah, yeah. That's about what that's what it would be. Yep. Um, the copyist had to sit in full Jewish dress, so you didn't come. You didn't have uh, you know um, what is it? Uh, dress down Fridays or anything like that. You know, um, you had to sit in full Jewish regalia with all the trappings. Reverence the scripture in the name of God, so that a fresh quill would be used to pen that sacred name. And to refuse to acknowledge the president of the king when writing that name. When you're writing down the name of God, you had to go get a fresh pen to write the name of God. And then throw that pen away. And while you're writing that name, a king comes in, you ignore him. That's how they reverence the name of God, folks. Now, that's a lot better than what you do here now down at the, you know, the ballpark and most of the people we hang with, with the name of God. They reverence the name of God so much that they wouldn't even pronounce it. And when they wrote it in their manuscripts, they had to get a fresh pen to do it. And when they did, when they finished it, this was a master copy that can be used to copy other ones. They were very particular about this. So when somebody comes along and says, well, you know, they were sort of sloppy in the way they wrote this stuff, and who knows what the original was. Look, they don't, they're speaking from ignorance. This was about as close to perfect as you could get, humanly speaking when you were copying these things. Um, they were very, very fastidious about this. And that's why when you go look at the Old Testament, you find very, very, very few differences. I mean, we're, we're talking about rare differences. There's almost, in fact, when you look at the textual criticism of the Old Testament, there's really not much there because it's all identical. There's nothing to criticize. And by the way, when we talk about criticism, we're not talking about criticism in a negative sense. All right, we'll talk about criticism in the positive sense of determining exactness. We think of criticism negatively. That's not what we're talking about here. Well, that's got pretty rough when it translated from one language to another. That's different. And we'll talk about translations in a couple weeks. But translations are very important because a translation can help us understand what the original was. Right? 
if, you know, because the translation, if I have a translation from 200 A.D., which, by the way, the Septuagint is, the Greek translation, well, if I know what the Greek is, I can determine what the Hebrew probably was that the Greek was translated from. Now, do I know exactly what the Hebrew was, necessarily? No, but I can get, a pretty, I can get pretty close. And this is very helpful when it comes to certain words, like words in the Old Testament that we sort of like have a tough time with. We can see how the Greek translators of 200 B.C. translated it, and that gives us a hint as to what the original meaning was. A lot of these are names of animals and trees, like gopher wood. What's gopher wood? Anybody know what gopher wood is? Nobody knows what gopher wood is. All right, It's a kind of wood. We don't know exactly what wood it is. That's the wood that the ark was made of. We don't know, now, is that, theologically, is that going to determine whether you go to heaven or hell if you get the right tree or not? No. But we don't know what that wood is, but we know how the Greek translated that word, so we get a hint of what it might have been. So that's why translations are important. The Masoretes added, and this is a Jewish group of people that did this, Jewish scribal group, and standardized the Hebrew text, that should be text, not test, adding vowel points and sure pronunciation. They also added... This, what they did here, they copied letter by letter. So they'd look over here and see this letter, copy this letter. That letter, copy that letter. Letter by letter. Nothing from memory. They count the number of times each letter occurs in a book. How do you like that? The, book, the, the letter Baith occurs 413 times in Psalms. So when they got done writing the book of Psalms, they count the number of Bs. And if it was off, they destroyed the manuscript. All right? Um, they calculated the middle word of a book. They could tell you what the middle word was in a book. And if the middle word was off, destroy the manuscript. All right. Actually, what I said here, if more than three mistakes exist, you destroy the manuscript. I mean, they counted the number of letters. They counted the middle word. They counted all this stuff. And if they had three errors, they destroyed the manuscript. Start over again. Very accurate. So you can see that with the Masoretes, there, there could be a little bit of error come in, but very rare. So, so what if there were two or one error, they would erase the error? No, there were two or one, they would probably leave it alone. But they, they were, again, it's, it's, like you, it's like me telling you, I want you to take the book of Jeremiah and go home and copy it by hand and come back. How many of you would get it exactly right all the way through, all the spelling and everything else? You know, somewhere you'd spell something wrong because you'd do it from memory, you know. But they were very accurate. Um, here's, what the, here's, here's the copyist, the, the, the scuttle butt between the copyists. Writing bows one's back, thrusts the ribs into one's stomachs, and fosters a general debility of the body. They were bent over all day long writing this stuff. How'd you like to do that for a living? You know, you complain about your job. How'd you like to do this for a living all day long? All right. There's no scribe who will not pass away, but what his hands have written will remain forever. That's their attitude. We're writing down God's word. You know, we're going to die, but what we're writing down is going to last forever. They had a high reverence for this. Extremely high. They were very careful about it. The end of the book, thanks be to God. When they finally got done with one, they had a party because they finally finished copying. Can you imagine copying of the Old Testament by hand, letter by letter, counting the letters as you go along? I mean, that... that it takes a long time to do that. Do you think all the scripts and manuscripts will be destroyed uh, at any time? I don't know. 
Well, of course, at the end of time when the earth burns up, we don't need them anymore, right? So that'll be done. But God's word, his truth will last forever. As travelers rejoice to see their home country, so also at the end of the book to those who toil. It's like being on a long trip and finally getting home. Finally got done with the manuscript. Write nothing with thy hand, but that which thou wilt be pleased to see at the resurrection. How do you like that one? Make sure that when you write this thing, you wouldn't be ashamed if God pulled it up at the resurrection and brought you an account for it. The idea there is that each copy was done so accurately that they could be master copies, I think, is what it's talking about there. I mean, these were not, you know, well, they're good enough, you know, we'll just sort of let them slide. Um, no, every copy had to be that closely written. Um, and then when we look at New Testament manuscripts, New Testament's a little bit different. Um, we have various periods of manuscript in, in the New Testament manuscripts. The early period, the first three centuries of the church, that would be the, you know, right, right at the time of the writing, which would be the first century, second and third century. We don't have a lot of complete manuscripts. Why is that? It took a long time to write it. They're written in different locations. And Christianity was considered what kind of religion? It was illegal. So to have a copy of the scripture was to really commit a capital crime. So what would happen is, you know, I'd come bouncing into your town and you'd have the book of Luke. And I'd quickly write out, as fast as I could, a couple of chapters, three, four, five chapters of the book of Luke, so that I would have them. It's like what you see in China today, you know, where they got people on the radio reading the Bible over the radio and people actually writing it down in these countries. All right. You, so it was a whole different kind of of, um, of atmosphere that you're writing these things. So the way we determine the integrity of a text in the New Testament is not that we have a very fastidiously copied original like we have in the Hebrew, but because we have thousands of these things, all of them we can sort through and come back to an original text from them. You see the difference? You understand what's going on here? All right. That's a whole canonicity issue, but yeah. that's part of it. Well, and maybe there was some uh, uh, humanistic mm -hmm. incorporations into. And, and see, so here's the other thing: what if I come if I come into your town? What am I going to copy? You want to copy something that's going to be pure. I want to copy something that's accepted as. Scripture. I'm not going to copy the book of Thomas or the book of Jude or some other harebrained book like that. I'm going to get one of the books that, that the church deems is important. And that's what canonization is, by the way. Canonization is not as much the church sat down and said, okay, we got 300 books, which ones do we pick? It was, of the 300 books that we have, which ones have people been copying and using and which ones has the church recognized as Scripture? And that's where we get our 27. Okay. Yes, that they were the ones that were used and copied and revered and recognized the scripture. But not to say they couldn't really take the, the history from these. No, there's some historical notes that are valid, valid in the old one, other ones, and but they are not scripture. 
But if uh, some of that, I, I wonder if, it, I mean, you can absolutely detect that if it's not inspired. And if you could highlight those, or because I don't think you'd want to eliminate it, but maybe you would. And if you did, if they could actually not become a part of the canon. Um, I believe the canon is closed. I believe our 27 that we have are the books that God wanted us to have. Are there value in some of these other books? Sure. Historical value, there's some things in there, but they're not scripture. The church is not recognized in the scripture. No one is recognized in the scripture. Except maybe, you know, one person over here and one person over there, but as a whole, church did not recognize in the scripture. We're going to talk about canonization probably next week. We'll start that. All right. I'm talking about the New Testament. I'm talking about the New Testament. Old Testament, we're, we got those. This is New Testament we're talking about here. All right. Um, so the way you determine the original integrity of the text is you've got multiple copies. And by taking all these copies, I can, I can take them and I can go back and get what was the original text from which they came with a very, very, very high degree of accuracy. Extremely high. And then um, in the 4th and 5th century, Christianity was legalized under Constantine. Remember Constantine? Well, he legalized Christianity, so now what did you have? Well, now you had more, um, you know, a more uh, productionized kind of copying of the text. More standardized, I should say. And uh, what you have as many manuscripts appeared from the ones that they had. And by the way, there are also translations that go back way early too. Syriac, Latin, all of those things. And these are written on parchment or vellum. They were not written on papyrus, they were on parchment because they were more expensive, right? Parchment is much more expensive. So now that Christianity is legal, I have access to those kind of materials. I can take my time, I can write these down. And that's where you see a lot of the canonization process coming in at this time. Vellum is the calfskin. It's parchment. Parchment is made from cows, vellum from cows. It's just another name for parchment. And then the monastic period, that's when the monastery started. You have uh, 6th to 9th century, so manuscripts were copied by monks in monasteries. And uh, what you find happening here is a lot of times the manuscript copy declines. As, as you go later and later and later in history, you know, you start working away in the 900, 1000, 1100, 1200, 1300. You see uh, manuscript quality declining because they're just wearing these standards like you had with the, um, the Hebrew copies. But what do we have? We have older copies that go way back before this. All right. So don't worry about that. We'll sort that all out. And then from the 10th century onward, we had the minuscule because we could write it in script. All right, so you had a lot more copies. And what you see is the number of copies of manuscripts we have in the later centuries are much greater because people had more access to copies. They were able to write them faster with the cursive, and they had monasteries producing these things. All right. Now, let's look at the next one. Yeah, there should be some extra copies. Yeah, there's some extra copies of stuff here. Um, this one here, I don't have a copy of this one yet. I'm sorry, you'll get it next week. There's some copies of stuff there. You'll get this one next week. I was bad. I didn't get to Teresa in time. 
It's not her fault. It's mine. All right. Yeah. This, no. This one here is last week's. Okay. This one here I'll have for you next week. Okay. So that you don't have a copy of this. All right. Let's look at some of the biblical manuscripts that we have. All right. Now what we're going to do here in the next 30 minutes, 35 minutes, is just take a 20,000 foot flight over what manuscripts we have out there and the importance of them. And I actually have pictures of them here so you'll see what they look like. Um, the Old Testament manuscripts, we don't have nearly as many of those because they were standardized. All right, We don't have thousands of Old Testament manuscripts laying around. We only have a handful of them. But they're all very much identical to each other. They're very standardized, so we have a very good copy of what the Old Testament was. Um, the Biblica Hebraica, which is the Hebrew Bible, you can, get, you can actually buy a copy of that if you're into that, if you're into Hebrew. It's called the Biblica Hebraica Stuttgartstenza. Um, it's based on only four major manuscripts. But these manuscripts are so closely identical that there's very little argument about what the original is. I have one. It looks like chicken scratches. It's really hard to read. I tried to start reading, learning that, but I gave up. All right. It's sort of like reading doctor's writing. You just sort of give up. You know. I think a pharmacist sometimes guesses more than they know what the guy wrote. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, Extreme age of the manuscripts along with their destructibility ensures few will exist centuries. Why is it that we don't have really, really old, old, old ones? Well, stop and think about it. 20, you know, 2,400 year old manuscript. You just don't have those things laying around. You know, they wear out. All right? You, you know, they wear out over time. So they're replaced by other manuscripts. It makes you wonder if there's more than just like a there may be some scrolls laying around out there. I mean, they found some in the 30s, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, you've got captivities and deportations. I mean, look at this. Jerusalem was captured 47 times. All right. So you, you don't expect to have a lot of old manuscripts. But God has preserved his word over the centuries. Another reason you don't have a lot of Old Testament manuscripts is because scribal law demanded that they be burned. When a script, when a when a scroll wore out, they had to bury it. Excuse me, buried, not burned. Buried. They buried the scroll in the ground to destroy it. All right, instead of just having it go somewhere else. Um, Masoretic practices—they destroyed manuscripts that were not exactly right. So you don't have a lot. I mean, if you had a flawed manuscript, it was destroyed. So. The Masoretic text that we have, which is the oldest Hebrew text from which we base our Old Testament on, all right, dates from about A.D. 895. That's the, and the manuscripts that they used are around that time period. So the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew text in your King James or NIV or whatever you have, is based in large part on these manuscripts from about 900 A.D. Okay, But again, they're very... Copying process ensured their accuracy over the centuries. And again, when we compared them, by the way, to the Dead Sea Scrolls, virtually identical. 1,200 year difference, identical text. On some major Old Testament manuscripts, we have this Cairo Codex. It's called, and in, in sometimes you see a manuscript there, C. 
Um, it's sometimes Bibles have in the, in, the, in the margins, they have little textual notes. Some of your Bibles do. Um, this dates from about AD 95. It's the older, oldest Masoretic manuscript and it contains the former and latter prophets. What's the former and latter prophets? Oh, we exclude the historical books and exclude the Pentateuch. So it'd be like Daniel through Malachi, it'd be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. That's what would be in it. We have the Leningrad Codex, um, the St. Petersburg Codex, also called from AD 916. And it contains Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. The Twelve are the minor prophets. In the Hebrew text, that was considered one book. So when you look at the Hebrew Bible, they have like 22 books. But that's equivalent to our 39, because they crunch the 12 minor prophets into one book, and they crunch Ezra and Nehemiah into one book. But it's the same. All right? Book. A codex. Remember what a codex is? Codex is a sheets that are um, sewn together like a book. It's like in a book form. It's parchments in a book form. Is what a codex is. All right? So we have that manuscript. Um, we have the Lipo Codex from AD 930. The British Museum has a codex for or a manuscript from 950. Yeah, that's the Oriental 44. This is the designation of the manuscript. The point is they got a bunch of the... I don't, this is not on the test, so don't worry about that. It's just for your information that there are some... We have some very old manuscripts of the Old Testament that our Bible is... Our text is um, based on. And they're pretty much identical. There's not a lot of differences. We have the Leningrad Codex from about A.D. 1008. This is interesting. It's the largest and only complete manuscript of all 22 books of the Old Testament. Remember I said Hebrew 22, R39. Okay. Um, a lot of times what you have in these, these codexes, you don't have the entire text. You have just a part of the text. So, for example, when we talk about a manuscript of the New Testament, that manuscript might only be a manuscript of Luke. Or it might only be a manuscript of Acts. Or just of John. Um, we don't have any complete papyri manuscripts of the entire New Testament. We have books of the New Testament, but not a complete manuscript. Because how were they copied? You know, when I bopped into your town, I quickly write out First John... You know, and if you might have had a couple other manuscripts, I don't have time to write those, so I get First John. Somebody else comes in, they get Ephesians. And somebody else comes in, they get Romans. And that's the way they copied them. It was all by hand. Um, this is a fancy word. What's a recension? Anybody guess on that one? A recension is a later edition of something. All right. So that codex, the bottom one there, is really the Leningrad codex. Now here's what a Hebrew manuscript would look like. Here's actually one of them. I don't know which one this is. But you can see, remember how you read it? Yeah. So you'd start up there and you'd go that way. Alright. And you can see how they, this was, this was uh, written out by hand. I don't know what, um, what book this is, but this is what I, Hebrew manuscript would look like. This is a parchment here. Alright? That's one of the old ones. The quality of the Masoretic text, just to drive this home so you don't walk out of here confused, the quality of the Masoretic text are, is very high. Um, there are very few variants 
What's a variant? A difference. Very few differences because they're all based on a single variant established about A.D. 100. So there's a text established about A.D. 100 from which all the Masoretic texts derive themselves. All right, now what happened around A.D. 100? Well, you have the Jewish scribes and the Jewish people. How careful were they about their Hebrew Bible? Very. Very, very, very careful. All right. And unlike the New Testament, which bases accuracy on the vast numbers, the Old Testament bases accuracy on the disciplines and practices of the scribes. If you go back and you just look at how these guys copied this thing, you can be pretty much assured that what they produced was as close to the original as humanly possible. And it didn't vary much through the centuries. They were just too careful about that. All right? And, and that's seen in the fact that when you look at all of these old Hebrew manuscripts, and by the way, you look at the translations of the Hebrew Bible in the older, like Syriac and Italian and things like that, they're all very much identical. There's just not a, much difference at all. So you can be rest assured that, you know, the, the scroll that Isaiah penned, you have to, you know, a very small, minute fraction of a decimal point you have the accurate copy of that. Many. Many. You get 25,000 manuscripts in the New Testament. Um, when you look at parallel passages, for example, they're identical almost. Uh, by the way, do you know Isaiah 36 and 39 and 2 Kings 18 through 20 are identical? Go look them up in your Bible. You know, they're, they're almost identical. Um, Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, Micah 4, 1 through 3. Word for word, they're identical. Letter for letter, they're identical. Um, How do you explain the fact that uh, uh, 1 and 2 Kings, uh, that uh, Isaiah gets over in Soviet Union, I guess, they have 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kings, and uh, I guess their 1 and 2 is actually on the Samuel 1 and 2. Yeah, it's just the way they name, the way they're called. It's the, it's the way the books are named. All right, but it's the same book. It's just we name ours differently. You know, they have like first, second, third, and fourth Kings. We have first, second Kings, first and second Samuel. All right. Um, it's interesting when you look at archaeologically when you dig up stones and rocks and things like that, you find that the names of the kings in the Hebrew Bible are what they were. I mean, they got the names right. So archaeologically, when you look at words, you look at phrases, you look at place names, you look at people names, they're all identical with the text. And when you compare it with the Septuagint, that's what the LXX is, with the, and, and Roman numbers, what is that? 70. It was written by 70 scribes. It's called the Septuagint. Um, shows no real textual variation. So I can look at the Greek text of the Septuagint, derive what I would what would be a Hebrew text, and guess what? It's equal to the Masoretic text. The point is, when you look at the Hebrew text, we have something that is as close to the original as humanly possible. Alright? And what variations may exist have has no impact on theology. You're not getting rid of anybody, you're not changing any theology, you're not doing anything like that. The Dead Sea Scrolls is another witness to this. Um, in 1947, they found these Dead Sea Scrolls. Bedouin boy throwing a rock into a cave heard something break. Went in there and found these scrolls. And uh, 
We have thousands of fragments of these. These are mainly papyri. So you've got to piece them together like a big jigsaw puzzle. In fact, if you, they had the Dead Sea Scrolls like on a... Like you could go see some of them. Um, it's pretty interesting. I think they've imaged some of them. So it's out on the internet now. You can go actually go and look at the original scrolls out there. Um, they were produced by Essenes. This is a sect of Jews that lived down by the Dead Sea, the Essene community. Um, they produced these scrolls as part of their religious culture. Yeah, that's, that's screwball. Yeah, don't worry about that. That's what you find on the History Channel, Discovery Channel. Um, they say John was an Essene. John the Baptist was an Essene, too. Um, what we found is a complete copy of Isaiah. A complete, the whole book. All right. Um, we have a commentary on the book of Habakkuk. They found an incomplete text of Isaiah. They have different, um, their own um, religious books. They had a, like a, um, a, a condensation of Genesis called Apocryphon. The point there, the most important one is that first one there. And when they compared that Isaiah scroll to the Masoretic text, they found virtually identical manuscripts. Again, you could find a couple of letters that were off, but as far as that, they were virtually identical. Yeah, these are dated somewhere. They actually dated before Christ. Some of them go back to like 150 to 200 BC. All right. They were. They, um, don't know that. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I do think it's interesting whether they did or not. The scroll that they had there, the Isaiah scroll. When you compare it, you've got you've got a scroll that's now 1,200 years distant from the oldest we had before, and we've got virtually identical manuscripts. I mean, that tells you something about the accuracy of our Bible. No. No. It's like a. If I remember correctly, it's like a like a condensed version of like a like a what we call it a um, paraphrase. All right. Um, K4 had we had a copy of Samuel dating back probably about the fourth century B.C. That's quite old. All right. And guess what? It's pretty pretty much what we have in the Masoretic text. Um, Cave 11 had Psalm 151, Leviticus, and an Aramaic. A targum is, a, is like a commentary on the book of Job. Later excavations, we found Joel through Haggai. All right? And again, when, when you piece all these things together and compare them to what the Masoretic text was, there's very little textual variation. Very little. Yeah. And again, it doesn't mean that there were other canonical books that you know that, that that were that they didn't how do I put they didn't have all the canonical books in, in their community. They had what they considered the most important ones. And they were a very apocalyptic kind of community looking forward to end times and things like that. So what what, what would you expect them to have? Yeah, which would be the prophetical books. And that's what you find. About 200 B.C., somewhere around in there. Yeah. When you compare the Dead Sea Scrolls with the Masoretic Text with the Septuagint, you find that they're virtually identical. Again, we're talking about extremely high 
quality of manuscripts here. We're not talking about vast different that you know when you read the history when you look at the history channel discovery channel you know it's almost like a crapshoot whether we have anything that's accurate but when you start looking at the evidence behind it you find that we have something that's very accurate god did preserve his text well, do we have any idea who put those scrolls in those it would be the essenes it would be their community that did that um, the isaiah a scroll is 95% identical to the Masoretic text. And what are the differences? Word spellings. Words change spelling over time, right? We all expect that. But it's the same word, it's just spelled differently. So you, you take those out and you take what's obviously a slip of the pen with you know one letter accidentally getting smudged into another, which you can pick out easily. You've got identical text. Alright? There's very little change. We have a very highly accurate Old Testament text. That's Old Testament. How about New Testament? Well, Dan showed you this chart earlier, I think. When you look at the number of copies of text that we have in that last column there, look at Pliny, Plato, Aristotle, Sophocles, Euripides, Catullus. You know, you look at these guys and say, well, you know, I've got three or four here, five here, seven here. Not the highest one there is Sophocles. And um, from the time Sophocles was alive to the earliest manuscript we have is 1,400 years. All right, there's a 1,400-year gap between the earliest manuscript we have of him and when he actually lived. All right? Now look at Mark at the, at the end. Got 24,633 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts from the Gospel of Mark. The earliest one we have is from 130 A.D., which is about 80 years after Mark wrote his book. What do you mean difference? Yeah, and yeah, it's different. And, and plus the fact here, some of these other ones here. This is interesting. I was just thinking about this on the way in to church this morning. When you look at old, old books, what other old book do you know of from 1200 B.C.? I don't know. I mean, you've got the Egyptian Book of the Dead, probably, but you know, nobody's going out and buying a copy of that, you know, to take the church with them. I mean, look, look at, look at this, that's why this book is so unique and so, so unlike anything else. You know. But what I'm saying is, is that the number of copies... Uh, now understand what we mean. Yeah. But see, here, here's, here's, understand what we mean by this. This could be anything from a full manuscript of Mark all the way down to quotes and lectionaries. Early church fathers quoted these books. You know, the early church fathers wrote letters to one another and they quoted New Testament books. Or could have been the inspiration of having Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus on the It's because of the value that this, the early church recognized this as scripture. You know, Mark. Well, I mean, who's quite honestly, does your eternal destiny depend on whether you got a copy of Plato or not? Yeah, all of this, you know, well, we know Plato said blah, blah, blah. We've well, got seven manuscripts. How do you know that's what he said? You know? They say, oh, we know that's what he said. Well, you know, Mark says this. Oh, you don't have any idea what Mark said. I mean, we could never be sure about that. It shows the stupidity and ignorance 
of the History Channel and Discovery Channel guys that come along and say, well, you can't know for certain whether the Word of God says this or that or the other thing. And it's like, you guys are nuts. Of course we can. we got more evidence for that than any of these other guys that you take for granted. You know, we have evidence, folks. It's, it, if anything, we have a, too much. <laughs> we have too much. Because we've got to sort through this. All right? No, but I'll, I'll get copies. You know, I've got to put this up on the website. I've been lazy and I haven't done it. So I've got to do this. Um, manuscript evidence. When you look at manuscript, you have basically four different kinds of manuscripts. You have the papyri. They're the oldest that we have. Why is that? And it's preserved in dry, arid climates, so we have old, old ones. And we have some of these dating from the 2nd to 3rd century. You know, the 2nd century is about 150 A.D. We have some papyri, you know. Um, the unsealed manuscripts are the uppercase, written on vellum and parchment, were from the 4th to 9th century. The minuscules, the cursive ones, the minuscules are the small letter ones, and the cursives are from the 9th the 15th century okay those are the main categories now let's look at the papyri and we'll just probably get started with this they date from the second and third centuries and uh, Christianity was illegal so you didn't go out and buy a piece of parchment to write the New Testament on you wrote it on the cheapest thing you could which would have been papyrus at that time so that's why we have the papyri um, there's about 76 papyrus pieces that we have um, and that we have collected over the years. Um, when you add them all together, you get most, not all, but most of the New Testament as we have it now. And the way you know that, the way they designate them is they have a P and then a number at the top. It's so like P and then like 38 or something like that. And if you pick up a critical Greek text, which I have a copy of if anybody's interested in looking at it, it shows what manuscripts each of the different variations or readings have. Alright, so let's look at a couple of these. These are the important ones. P52 is the most important one of these. This is the John Ryland's papyrus, it's called. Um, it's the oldest known fragment of a New Testament book that we have. It's about 150 A.D. Now, when did John die? Any takers on that? 96, 97, 98, somewhere around in there. So this dates to about 50 years after John this particular fragment. Um, it contains about five verses from the Gospel of John that we have. Um, P45, 46, and 47 are very important ones. They are called the Chester Beatty papyri because that's the guy who collected them. All right? And uh, they can, there are three codexes, which are what? Books. Okay? Papyrus books. All right? And they contain most of the New Testament. Uh, 45 has the Gospels and the Book of Acts, P46, most of the Pauline Epistles, and 47 Rome, uh, contains Revelation, portions of Revelation. Now, this is interesting. These go back to the 3rd and 4th century, and these are the books that are there. What is that telling about canonization? It's probably pretty... Pretty set. It's probably pretty set, right? Because that's what's in the codexes. That's what they're writing. That's what they're copying down. So you get hints of what they consider to be scripture. All right. Um, this is what John Ryland's papyrus looks like. This is the actual fragment of it. And you can see the, the little Greek letters there. I don't know what 
part of John it is, but it's part of the Gospel of John. And then this is uh, P46. It's part of the Book of Romans here. All right. And again, since it's Greek, it's written that way. All right. And it's written in uppercase Greek letters. That's why it's an unsealed. Most of the papyri are uppercase letters. All right. So this is uh, Book of Romans here. Yeah, they found usually in monasteries, things like that, that were preserved over the years. That's where they found them. Yeah. Um, but this is a part of Romans. This is an important one. Here's a part of the book of Revelation. Now, as you look at this, you say, now, wait a minute. What happened here? Well, what is papyrus? It's very brittle, right? So that's why when we talk about manuscripts, sometimes we have a fragment, but we have other manuscripts that fill in the rest of the words that this one doesn't have. And by doing a massive jigsaw puzzle, we can put it all together, okay, and get the original text. Um, other important ones here are the what we call the Bodmer papyri, 66, 72, 75. 66 is a real important one. It has basically the whole Gospel of John on it. So it's a very important one. It's one of the earliest records we have of the Gospel of John. Um, 72 contains First uh, and Second Peter and Jude, um, but it also contains some apocryphal books, uh, to, well, as well. Some books that were not did not make their way in the canon, but were thought of to be pretty important books back then. All right, pretty more important records. Um, P75 contains John and Luke. And by the way, it's the earliest known copy of Luke that we have, the earliest known manuscript. And notice the date on that. It's about 100 years after Luke was penned. All right, we have a copy, a full copy of his book. All right. Um, Acts, Acts was not part of this papyri. It's not that it wasn't canonical. It was not part of this papyri here. All right. And here's, uh, here's what the Bodmer papyrus looks like. You can see... Um, on the edge here, how it was, you know, a codex probably. But that's the Bodmer Papyrus P66. That would be the Gospel of John. And then here's 75. This is the Gospel of Luke. And I can actually read right there. You can see L-O-G-K-A-N right there. That's Luke. All right, so this is the first, this is chapter one of Luke right there. They have. Um... Let's just go a few more minutes here. Um, New Testament manuscripts, the unsealed manuscripts. Now, we talk about the papyri. That's the oldest that we have. Another category is the unsealed manuscripts. And what's different about the unseals, remember? Well, they were on parchment and they were... Christianity was legal, so you probably had a much better copy. And it contained more, you know, you have more complete copies of the New Testament on it. Um, written in capital letters, no spaces. And when you look at them in um, the critical text, they have a number on like 03, 08, 09, 13, whatever. Um, written on parchment or vellum, dated from about the 4th to 9th century. And this is probably one of the most important classes of manuscripts because it has, we have complete manuscripts here. And then we can use these to go back and look at the papyri where we're missing fragments of the papyrus and piece everything together and get our text. 
The most important of these were unknown to the authors of the KJV Bible. Now we're going to spend a whole time talking about the whole KJV fight. KJV only. King James. Yeah, where there are people that believe that if you don't read the King James, you're damned and on your way to hell. Um, we're going to talk about those. But they didn't have these manuscripts when they did the King James, so that's part of the fight. We'll talk about that later. Um, but let's look at some of these here. About five more. Vaticanus is one of these. It's found in a um, Vatican library. Um, it's the oldest manuscript on parchment or vellum that we have, and it dates from about 325 to 350. What time period was that? Any historians in here? Constantine, right? Right around there. This dates back to the time of Constantine. It contains most of the Old Testament and most of the New Testament and most of the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha was included in this particular one. And we're missing a couple of pieces. These, these are passages that are fought over. John 7, 58 through 8, 11. Anybody remember what passage that is? That's the woman taken in adultery. All right. And Mark 16, 9 through 20 is the long ending of Mark. We're going to talk about both of those later. But uh, those are not part of this manuscript. Um, this is what it looks like. There's uh, Codex Vaticanus, also known as B, manuscript B, or 03. Okay? And that's what it looks like right there. And again, it has most of the... Most of our Bible is contained in us. I'm sorry. What was? Let's go back. We'll talk about those. We'll talk about those. Don't worry. We'll get there. We'll talk about those. All right. Um, quickly, Codex Sinaiticus is another one. Dates from the 4th century. Um, it was discovered by this guy named Count Tischendorf. He's a person out of Christian history. And uh, found on Mount Sinai in the monastery there. They were lighting, using it to light fires in the monastery. Of all things. Yeah. It has contains uh, 1 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And... Uh, Third visit, uncover some additional leaves. What's a leaf? A page. A page out of this. All right. And ultimately, they have about half the Old Testament, all of the New Testament. It also omits what? Same two passages. We'll talk about those later. Also contains the Apocrypha, the Epistle of Barnabas, and the Shepherd of Hermas. And Britain bought it for 100,000 pounds in 1933. And that's what it looks like there. This is Codex, Codex Sinaiticus, all right, dating from about the fourth century. Um, let's just get through this real quick. Um, Codex Alexandrinus is another big one here. Um, contains the entire Old and New Testament, with the exception of just a few passages. Um, for, it contains also First and Second Clement and the Psalms of Solomon. Clement was an apostle of, or a disciple of John, an early church father. Not John, excuse me, Paul, an early church father. And uh, some thought that his stuff should be part of the canon, but it was never accepted as such. And this is what Alexandrinus looks like. You can see it. You see the quality of this. You know, this is parchment going back to the third, 
fourth and fifth centuries A.D. Not as much anymore. Um, you know, not as much. But this is uh, Alexandrinus. And then we have some other... This one here is a text that was erased and then written over. Okay, that's what the rescriptus is. Um, this is 04. Um, and this is what it looks like. You can see here how you can see where some of the stuff was erased and then was written over. Alright. But, you know, if, you're, if, if that's what you do all day long is look at manuscripts, you can read that and see what it said. You know. Bizet is another one. Um, contains the four Gospels, Acts, 3rd John, 11 through 15. Here's the Codex Bizet. Here. Alright. Written it. Again, this is all uppercase Greek letters. Alright. Then we have some other ones. I'm not going to go through all of these here, but here's uh, another manuscript, Washington Tonius, W16. And you can see the, I don't know what uh, book that is there, but that's what it looks like. And we'll stop there with the uh, unseals. All right. The, the thing here is that, you know, you might say, well, you know, how does this help me Monday morning? Well, the Bible that you have, the book that you have, is accurate within, you know, fractions of a percentage. When I mean fractions, I mean point oh 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 one percent You've got God's Word in your hand. You don't have to worry about picking it up and thinking that somehow it's been totally corrupted over the centuries. There's just no evidence for that. If anything, there's evidence to the contrary, that what you have is something that God has made sure has been preserved over the centuries so that you can have confidence in its reliability. All right? And so that's why this is important. Hopefully it's interesting to you. I mean, you're not bored out of your skull. We'll get to more some interesting stuff coming up too, so don't worry. I think it's also important what we're not seeing that you don't have time for because you don't have history books depicting the chronological order of all these aspects being brought together as you're teaching them. Yeah. There's usually not a book that you fix on. No. It's all separated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nah, I'm not going to write a book. People wrote a book much better than I can. All right. Well, let's close in prayer and we'll be back next week. Father, thanks so much for this day you've granted. And thank you, Father, that you have not only given us your word, but you preserved it through the centuries as well. And that what we have in our hands and we read and we hold dear is really your word to us. It's the same word that you gave to the to Isaiah and to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel and to Paul. We have it. And I pray, Father, that we would treasure it as we should. And we would revere it as some of these scribes did in the Old Testament when they wrote it down. We take it so much for granted because we have so many copies of it. But there was a day, Father, when people would give their life for a single piece of your word. May we treasure as we should. And we thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen.